Welcome to the Educate US podcast with your host, Nick Saveri, Dr. Stacy Schultz, and Dr. Patrice Fenton. Three former teachers and administrators talking about a wide range of topics happening in education. Time to educate us. Thank you, of course, for listening to the Educate US podcast. Uh, as always, I'm proud to join my co hosts and friends today, but also in addition to having another friend and colleague actually joining our show who pre- presents a really awesome and unique perspective as being a member of a school board. But in addition to, uh, Paul has also served on the board of directors for the New Jersey School Boards Association uh, and has presented at various school board conferences just on a variety of topics of interest for school board members. So it's not just that Paul has been on a school board. That's one lift we could do at Educate US. No, no, no. My man has served on multiple school boards, so we are excited to hear uh, those varieties of experiences um, and just get connected. So I'm going to do something a little unique today. Stacy, before I hit record, introduced a story she just read in the New York Times. Um, something was sitting with me as well. Patrice and Paul had some thoughts, too. So something I want to leave with today is what I'm going to call what's in the news, what's top of mind. The theme here is around children. You know, we're in an election cycle, and there's so many topics that come up during an election cycle. But oftentimes, one of the most important ones tends to be a political football and is spoken of in a, just a variety of ways, many of which is not necessarily the most accurate or the most forthcoming with the reality of such, which is the subject of children. Stacey, I'm going to go to you first for something you just read in the Times recently and just present. And what we're all going to do here is just what article would you reread? What's top of mind for us to put it to the group? If anyone wants to respond, great. And then we'll go from there. So, Stacey, I'm going to go to you first. Yeah, thanks, Nick. So it's an opinion piece and it's titled We Americans Neglect Our Children. And the premise of the article is really looking at, you know, statistics about, you know, w- what happens in America for our children versus kind of what happens in our other wealthy country peers, right? And so in the first few paragraphs, they're talking about those different levels of statistics. And one quote here is, um, so in America, children are more likely to go hungry or live in poverty in America than most of our peer countries. They are also much more likely to die because of drugs, guns, accidents, and an equitable healthcare system. As it goes on, it talks about additionally, chances are reaching an American child's chances of reaching adulthood have fallen in recent years. So it's pretty, you know, dire in facts that they're sharing about how we as America are really securing a future and safety and health for our for our children and they talk it goes on to say you know hey and we're not even talking about these issues it should be central these issues and and we're not and a group got together um it was called the summit and um on american families kids and families hosted by common sense media and they said well what should be put on a pro-child agenda? And so they outlined some points. I won't go too deep into it, but a few of them that they named are an early childhood care program, an expanded refund child tax, 
uh, new regulatory body to oversee technology companies and media, improvements in our K-14 education. And those are some of those that they really highlight it. So uh, I pass it back to you, Nick, to see, you know, and the rest of our group, just to see what, what have you all been reading that's really standing out to you these days? On the subject, funny enough, segue-wise, so I read something in the Washington Post. Now it's in the perspectives category, uh, which I think is a funny way of saying editorial. But it was about child care, actually, specifically, I'll read the headline here. A child care center isn't yet open. The wait list already nears 1,500 underneath. The demand for one of 127 spots at the Maryland Center shows how eager families in the region are for quality, affordable child care. This is from the D.C., Maryland, Virginia section of the Washington Post, so local news, essentially. And it's funny that, Stacey, as you brought that up, um, about the article, and that definitely comes up for me here. And it just keeps coming back to this idea that childcare A is becoming less and less affordable, but B, it's becoming more and more, it's becoming harder and harder to access. The article talks about, you know, it, it shares an interview with a couple of different parents, just their hopes and really their dreams of getting their child into this particular center and what the implications are for not doing so. Like many articles that talk about childcare, post-pandemic, it talks about the reality of what's happening when childcare is not offered, is not attainable by a family, and how often predominantly it's mothers, women that will always suffer for that. And even, even during the pandemic, just to see just the number of women that have stepped out of their respective roles. Um, and it just keeps coming back to this fact that, and I connected, Stacey, what you were just saying of, this seems like something that we could be addressing. About, um so it's, yeah, so it kind of on a smaller level, what you're speaking to is an example of one particular place uh, in the D.C. metro area. Patrice, I'm going to go to you next. I mean, what it's interesting uh, that you brought that article, Stacey. Uh, it reminds me of similar statistics I heard recently around child poverty specifically. Um, and it made me wonder about the, and this is something we've talked about on the show before, but the impact on mental health. Um, and how it's just, you know, I saw uh, an article, and this is New York City specific, but about the need for social workers and guidance counselors in schools and things of that nature. Um, and it just makes me think that even if we had enough guidance counselors and social workers, there's still more that needs to be done to support the mental well-being of our young people, particularly when you hear about the prevalence of children living in poverty. Um, particularly when you think about the reverberating impact of COVID, particularly when you think about just the trauma of living in this country, um, particularly when you think about the trauma that happens in our schools. I mean, there's just so many layers that a lot of young people have to live with um, and endure. Um, and to, to think that none of this is really being talked about or addressed on these political platforms is, I mean, quite honestly, it's not surprising. Um, but it's scary when you think about the impact it'll have on future generations. Um, and I also think about the impact of technology and the fact that we're moving toward this, you know, more advanced technological age and what that's doing to human development. So you add that on to the issues we're raising. It, it's, it's quite the confluence of um, factors. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a bit scary, but I'm, I'm, I'm also, it, it also motivates me in a way to continue to do the kind of work that we all are engaged in, right? So there is that. 
This episode is brought to you by KitCaster. KitCaster books you on top podcasts. How do funded startup founders attract prospects and talent? Podcast interviews. How do entrepreneurs with exits find new deals? Podcast interviews. How do C-suite execs differentiate in crowded markets? Podcast interviews. KitCaster books you on top podcasts. Click the link in the show notes for a special offer. Celebrate good conversation. Uh, Stacy, as you're listing the areas where we're failing kids, it re- reminded me of a conversation that I'd had with the superintendent in a middle class, working class community in Pennsylvania. And um, I was there in my role as an education sales uh, representative uh, offering uh, professional development services. And I made a comment to her, something like, because it was right before Thanksgiving, I said, oh, but the kids, they must be eager to have their four-day break or something like that to make conversation. She says, well, you know, actually, a lot of kids dread Thanksgiving because it's only when they come to school that they know they're going to get a meal. And, you know, that that really, I mean, that was the reality that that she worked in. And I know now, again, you know, that that's true in the vast majority of schools, there are kids coming to school hungry. And, you know, my admiration for educators is for, if nothing else, that they take whatever comes through the door that morning and they got to work with it. And I'm sorry, but kids that are hungry aren't going to be able to learn. Uh, Kids that, uh, you know, are responsible for their siblings after school uh, have a lot of things on their mind, right? So, uh, there's a there's a lot of things that we don't always think about, and I'm I'm sensing that we're learning to ask these questions of students though to understand better. You know, it's not you know why are you acting that way? It's more of that question: what what happened to you? What's happening to you? That's more relevant. Uh, on an uplifting note, I will say that as a board member, we, uh, my board uh, recognizes students of the month. And uh, in the in the middle school, and some of the most compelling stories are kids who are so honored to be getting this recognition. And some of them will say things like, "I came to this country in the second grade, and I didn't even know how to speak English, and here I am getting this award today." You know, and and it's it that really, as a board member, that that moves me. So there's a lot of there's good things happening, too. And I think we're getting more sensitive to what kids are coming through the door with every day. Paul, with you on today, I think somewhere that sort of sits with me is, you know, you've sat on various boards. You've done this for you know now two decades. So, Paul, let's just begin with your journey. You know, before even getting into a school board, you know, you're a member of a, of a community. Right. Mm-hmm. And there's school present. You know, I know you're also a parent as well. What was your relationship with school as someone who who graduated, who left? But like, you know, you live somewhere where there's a school, there's a school district before getting into the actual boardrooms and doing that work. What was your relationship with school and education? Well, you know, uh, having kids changes things, as we all everybody here knows, Uh, I was really didn't think too much of I mean, Listen, when you move into when you start a family and you buy a home, you're always thinking about the quality of the schools and you check that out. 
And of course, we did the same thing. We did our due diligence there. It was a good, nice little small community. In a, in a, at the time, it was a National School of Excellence. I think President Clinton had actually been there to, to present, a, present the award. And that was before we even moved into town. So it had a great reputation. So that was for the first thing that we were interested in. Um, my personal involvement, there were different committees. This superintendent had a tendency to want to create uh, parent committees to look at different, examine different aspects of the school. So family life was one of them. We also examined our relationship with the uh, secondary district to which we sent our kids, because it's just a small K-6 district here in New Jersey. Um, that's where I got started on a school board. And so he would form committees to to look at the different aspects of the, of the school life. And I went on those committees as a parent. And they got I they saw so much of me and they could tell that I was interested that when a board seat became vacant, they asked me if I'd like to fill it temporarily, at least until the next election. And I said, yes. So they, they kind of drew me in. Uh, I, I had some strong feelings. I had strong feelings about the family life program. And, and I had strong feelings about the role of school. Uh, what I saw as stepping on my toes as a parent, because if anybody's going to, if we can call it family life, we can call it sex education, whatever we want to call it. But when it comes to those conversations, that's my job as a parent. And I had strong feelings about that. And um, I, I fully intended to make my strong feelings known. And I'll just tell a quick story because I tell this sometimes because it's 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 something I remember very well and it's had an impact on me. I I was I was ready to explain after they went through the whole curriculum in this meeting and they told us all the, how they covered all these topics. I took a deep breath and I was about to unload and say, excuse me, but this is my job as a parent. And I don't expect you, you know, to take this on in the schools. You're, you're stepping on my toes. And before I could get anything out, there was a, a mother sitting next to me and she looked every bit like I do. I mean, she was my, a neighbor. She didn't look like she had had a hard life, a great life, just a, an average person. And she said, you know, I really want to say that I'm so grateful to have the professionals explain all this to my children. And so I'm so grateful that you're you're covering this, this you know, content with my kids and, and that we can count on you for this. And so that let all the wind out of my sails <laughs> because I, 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 it, it's affected me ever since as a board member to remember that not everybody sees things or has expectations of school the, the way that I do. And before I go and, and shoot from the hip, I need to consider other people and, and, and their perspectives too. So that was kind of eye-opening to me. That was before I became a board member, but it certainly influenced uh, my thinking as a board member. Thanks, Paul, for that. That was, I appreciate like what not only it sounds like got you interested in joining the school board, but also the encouragement you got to joining the school mm -hmm. board. Um, and you also kind of circled around there as to like some things you learned about what the role of being on the school board is from your perspective can you tell us a little more about that like what do you think it, from your perspective is an ideal role of a school board member and i'm gonna layer on a question sorry and like the characteristics that are helpful um to being uh, a, a meaningful and we talked about this before we started public servant mm -hmm. right 
This is a public servant, a school school board member. So what are the characteristics that help to, to for people to serve? And what is the role as you see it? When I got on the board, it, it, a lot of this has evolved over time because the first inclination as a new board member is to say, wow, they I'm walking into the middle of a conversation about which I know very little. And these people have all been working on this together for so long. They know each other. They know the school. They know the administration. And I'm just walking in and what do I know? So the first thing that happens is a, a bit of being overwhelmed. But the tendency there can be you kind of lose sight of what your role should be. And then you get quiet. And then you kind of go along with the group. And before you know it, um, you've got complacency or groupthink. Um, it also depends on the, the leadership of the board, the, the strength of the leader as the superintendent. So uh, every board has a different personality, and I can only speak from my experience, and I'm not speaking for my board or any other board in particular, but a, a danger of boards, if they, don't lose, if they don't have a clear vision, is that they basically become complacent and they don't look for things to improve. In New Jersey, we have a very robust training, mandatory training. It's manda mandated by the state. It's delivered by New Jersey School Boards Association. And it's very much focused on the roles and responsibilities of a board. Uh, of a board. And in, it, to my way of thinking, it's, it's all accurate and it's all important. It, and all those roles and responsibilities keeps boards from becoming micromanagers and getting overly involved and engaged in the decision-making that should really be made by educators. Um, but what is missing is understanding that the, the board members and the board as a whole especially have the ability to shape the experience that students and parents and educators have in the school. And the best way to shape that experience is through policy. And through policy, you can you can really set a tone as far as expectations, as far as values, how decisions are made. And I've come to really, uh, and I can give you examples of, of, of policies that I think we've implemented that I'm proud of and proud to have been a part of. But fundamental and, and a fundamental characteristic of, of effective policy to me is empathy and being able to step outside yourself and see the needs of other students. Try to think of what it must be like for an educator, um, an educator, a teacher who is worried about heading, you know, venturing into subjects that are controversial. You know, will they be supported by the board? Will they be supported by the administration? Um, what what is it like for a parents who receive only communications home in English and they don't speak English? Um, so a lot of my questions have come to be centered around what must it be like? And you can fill in the blank. What must it be like for different people? Right now in New Jersey, um, what's getting a lot of attention is, is what must it be like for transgender students? And what must it be like for them to hear all the vitriol around policy that's intended to protect them? Um, so uh, I, I, for me, a board member should be cognizant of the fact that they, of their role in shaping the experience of the educators and the students and the parents in their school. And they should approach that through empathy. A lot of boards of education, if you look at them, they, they look alike, okay? They all they, they all tend to 
their faces all tend to look alike. They like they have a lot in common and, and they don't necessarily look like their community. So there's a lot of boards that don't look look like their community looks. And so it's a challenge for them to think like other aspects of their community think that they have no experience with. And I, that's a real challenge for boards. Thank you for naming that, Paul. It, it, it reminds me of all of this conversation around DEI and people thinking that it's not necessary. And, and clearly you're naming an, a, an example where it's obviously very necessary. Um, and I appreciate you naming as well the training that everyone has to go through. I think that at least um, communicates a certain level of standard. Mm -hmm. But I also know that training doesn't necessarily mean that people are going to uphold that standard in practice. Um, but you named something also very interesting to me about the policies that you've been able to be a part of as, as, as a board member. Um, so I'm really curious if you could share um, some of those you, you, you named that there are some that you were actually especially proud of. Um, if you could share with our listeners, I think that would be able, that would help us to almost de demystify what it actually means to be on a board and to, to really spotlight the impact that someone can, can make by, by serving on one. So if you could right. share that, that would be great. Yeah, sure. So okay. what's come to mind in, in New Jersey of late, and it's because of this transgender policy is, is that a lot of policies are handed to a school board and they're described as being mandatory. The law says you must do this, so here's the policy that reflects the law. You must you must prove up. You must pass that, and that's all well and good. But there are opportunities within policies to 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 make it your own and to make it more sensitive. Uh, one example that's kind of a one example is um, our concern that students who maybe have experienced trauma. What must it be like for them to huddle in a dark corner with the lights out during a, secure, a lockdown drill? Um, so our policy was designed to prohibit anybody from making kind of noise, rep replicating gunfire, kicking on doors. A, a, lot of, a lot of schools apparently felt that this was necessary to enact, to, to, to be a safe school is to try to really scare people with their inner security drills. And, and we wrote a policy that prohibits that. And much of that has since become state law in New Jersey, by the way. So there are some policies that are, that, that's an example of a policy that was mandatory. There's another policy that says that you, there it lists national holidays that you must honor. You must honor those holidays um, with patriotic assemblies or patriotic types of, uh, uh, you know, programs for students before they go on, on holiday. One of those, one of those policy, one of those holidays is Columbus Day. <laughs> so, so and, and, and it's written right in the policy. I mean, it's in, in, in your hand, here's the policy. Boards approve the policy. We added to that. We said that we expect our educators to give a well-rounded accounting of history the good, the bad, and the ugly, and we will. And I'm paraphrasing here, but we will protect you in 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 giving a, an honest assessment of history. We looked at our textbooks, and our textbooks did not give a, gave a very one dimensional view of Christopher Columbus. And I'm not just picking on him <laughs> because, you know, the, the, there's plenty of t examples in textbooks where they are a little bit, uh, you know, they kind of skirt difficult issues. So our, our policy directly empowers teachers to 
to uh, to teach history from all perspectives. I, I'm I'm proud of that policy. And then there are policies like uh, the you know you state the philosophy your your district's philosophy of education, and in our philosophy of education, we made sure that we uh, expressed a vision for our schools that is a reflection of a fair, just, and equitable society. So that's just that doesn't mean a whole lot, but it's an expression of value. So in policy, not only are you saying how things are to be done, but you're also sharing the values of your community. And that's that that's what good policy should do. Paul, you brought up a couple things there that I'm really interested in. You're talking about the values of the community. And you mentioned the challenge of people on the board really understanding the values of their whole community. So there, I imagine there's some contention or tension that happens <laughs> in, in some of these meetings. And you also, you brought up textbooks and the kind of skirting history was a great comment. I mean, because we see, we talked a lot about uh, the banning of books, right? Because of not wanting to talk about important uh, issues that are prevalent, but also right naming and recognizing members of our society, and it's so interesting because they both, to me, play uh, play against each other. And in, in what you're speaking to, like here we have boards making decisions about blocking certain, and and not your, I'm not saying your board, but boards across mm -hmm. the country blocking different books, blocking different stories, trying to erase histories, and you're also talking at the same time that, yeah, and boards often look the same. I'm presuming they're mostly white. I actually don't know the statistics, but I'm presuming. Yeah, I, yeah. I don't know either. And some of this is observations of other boards, but it's also been true of the boards that I've been on. I mm -hmm. I was in a on a particularly diverse board, predominantly um, Hispanic and recent immigrants. And there was one person, but he was a professional, he was Hispanic, and quite honestly, he, he didn't really bring much to the table at that time um, to represent that. But but he was only one of nine people on a board, and the rest of us all, yes, were, were very white. I don't think that that's uncommon. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if people, if they look around and they notice it. Mm. And uh, you, you really have... I'm, 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 I get a little outspoken on this in different venues, but really, you, you really have, if that's the case, and your your board makeup doesn't reflect that of your community, what are you doing to think like other aspects of the community that you have no experience with or you have nothing in common with? Um, because most most district mission statements will reference all students. We are we will advance the achievement of all students. Well. You know, does all really mean all? Um, I'll tell you, transgender students are probably one or two or three percent, but they they're there. Does all mean all? When you're talking about protecting students, uh, and you and you're talking about your transgender student policy, and you have a mission statement that says that you know you, you're there for, to serve all students, you really have to question whether you're taking that seriously. And is your experience that? You know, in that, I mean, I think you're bringing up some really interesting points of tension, it sounds like. Mm -hmm. Can you give us some examples of that? Like what have been some tensions because of maybe not everyone being there to serve all students that you've seen emerge? 
And whether that's boards you've been on, or I know you mentioned you were also a field service rep, service yeah. rep, and so you went to other boards and such. Yeah, I, I I try to be careful to speak of my own experience as an individual board member, and I've been on very good boards for the most part, and I, and I don't like to make generalizations. I also read in the papers and, and in media about different boards, just like everybody else does, and, and a lot of that is is alarming. But in that one district where we were, um, the, the, the board absolutely reflected the minority of the town. Um, we, the, uh, there was a presentation on, on our technology and on the technology that would be available. This was a long time ago, so it was even before one-to-one. -one. But uh, it, uh, it, maybe it was about one-to-one, -one, taking, taking home uh, Chromebooks at the time. And, and I raised my hand and I asked the question, do we know how many, what percent of our, our households have internet access? And that stopped the meeting. <laughs> and, and of course, well, yes, we know that 98%, well, you know, I don't know that you know that 98% do. Um, I will tell you that when I was, when the subject of Christopher Columbus specifically was raised, that attracted some, raised some, a, a little bit of concern. Um, so we subsequently, it was a great conversation and it was, we you don't know, put everything on the table and we altered our policy, but not to single out Christopher Columbus. Um, there was a time when I proposed a resolution that for the board, uh, to, in support of students deferred access DACA, you know, the, uh, dreamer kids, um, and my board wouldn't, wouldn't approve that, um, but it did ultimately, uh, some form of my resolution did go to the school boards association and they presented it as something boards might adopt. So yeah, you know, there are, um, there, there's sometimes there's pushback. I, there, there's concern that we not be political. School boards have never been political, but in my opinion, those days are gone. You know, the, the, we're living in a new world right now. And um, a lot of these things, unfortunately are political. Paul, just, you know, from the, from being in this space for so many years, you know, over the last few years that Stacy brought up about book bannings, mask mandates, which was a, a point of contention here uh, in the Eastern Eastern school district, you know, where my, where my daughter goes to school, have the times, and I think you were just about to answer this question, but I'm going to press you on it. Have the times sort of shifted the role of school boards and, and school board members? Has there been a momentum that swept through? And you mentioned not, not all of the wildest of stories are living in the boards that you're a part of, but have sort of the wind shifted that now suddenly school boards are viewed um, either way too attentively or, um, or people view them as opportunities to really push forward a political agenda? Well, certainly, you know, school is on the firing line like never before. And there's an expectation that people take sides that are black or white. Okay, so hard lines are drawn. It's, it, it, everything is polarized, right? Um, so I expect my board to, for example, if I, I were, I could be someone in the community that expects my board to deny, um, to, I'll use transgender policy at the risk of overusing it, it, it as an example. The, I, the argument is the policy as written does not allow the district to inform parents when their child is expressing a, the opposite gender. And if you read the policy, the policy values very much um, student privacy, 
but it absolutely does not prohibit the school. In fact, it says that there may be times when the school does need to make that call, but it does, it, it, it honors the student's privacy. The, the reaction that I see boards making, and these are I'm just talk, from reading the newspapers like everybody else, uh, is that the response is to remove the policy from the policy board. And th that's dangerous because then somebody, in, in, in the policy covers a lot more than just parent notification, but somebody someday is going to make a mistake in how they handle a situation because they didn't have policy to guide them. And the board will have absolutely absolved itself of, uh, uh, of taking on a challenging issue and, and addressing it adequately and to the standards and the values of the community. So trying to circle back to your question, yeah, the, the expectations on boards, I think, are that they they re, they react without a broad lens, without a broad perspective on the ripple effect of some of these, some of their actions. But once you get on the board, no matter who voted for you and what why they supported you, you have to take the broad lens and you have to take you, you have to you have to have a 360 degree view that maybe you didn't necessarily concern yourself with when you were a candidate. So I just think that the expectations are 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 too narrow uh, on board members. I was curious about um, your comment around the values of the community. Um, are there any like explicit ways that the boards you've served on have worked to infuse that into the decisions that are made there? Or is it more, because I hear you talking about things like empathy and like, what do you do when the board is not reflecting the community and I think this is a really good point that that applies in a lot of different contexts, that, that those values are very important to make sure that the things you're doing are reflecting the needs and the values of the community that you're serving. So I'm curious, I guess, more from like maybe a process or like decision making level, how you've seen that play out um, on the boards you've seen, on the boards you've sat on. Well, I'm going to say that a, a board hopefully has at least one board member who raises their hand and says, what about, what about this? Um, so let's say the question is, um, do we want a, a uh, security officer in our school to carry a gun? Now, with all the mass shootings, with all the, the school shootings, the, the knee-jerk reaction is yes, okay? We absolutely want that. I don't want my kids to feel that they're so unsafe in school that we have to have an armed guard in the school to protect them. I, I, I don't think that creates the kind of environment for learning that we that we want. And this might be an extreme example. Um, somebody needs to be at the board table to say, is this really what we want our kids to see? Do we really want them to feel that, un, that, that, that they're so vulnerable that we need somebody with a, with a gun to guard them in school? Um, so that's an example of it's it, it, the, the, the easy answer is yes. We, this is something every school now has a guy with a gun, an armed, you know, security guard. Um, but there's not often anyone who will ask if that's really what we want. Now it might be that what that is what we want, but did anybody think about this? Um, the point that I made at the board table was if we were really concerned about school security, we would we would have metal detectors and all the kids would have to walk through school through a metal detector. Um, obviously, nobody liked that idea. I didn't like that idea. But the, the, is, is it worth that feeling of safety um, 
at the cost of the environment, the climate you want to create in the school. So I don't know if that's the best example, but, um, you know, it, it's a matter of asking, you know, what about, what about another perspective? Sometimes I try really hard to think if I see everybody moving in one direction, that's my cue to stop and see if there's anything that we're missing. And I don't know that a lot of boards do that. You know, what, what are we missing? Thanks, Paul. We were just saying um, offline, like these conversations that we've had both with um, Demary and you about boards and, and other things has been so interesting and just so powerful to hear some of the behind the scenes that happen. Um, and, and in that vein, like, is there anything as like a parent, a voter that you think people really should pay attention to when it comes to making decisions around school board? Yeah, I would, I would first of all, go to school board meetings and try to get a sense of how decisions are being made. 90% of what's on the agenda is pro forma approvals that just have to be done. There's not much interesting there. A lot of boards take pride in the fact that they can do a, have a meeting done in 15 minutes, okay? Because all they do is they vote on what's on the agenda. What you didn't see is you didn't see the committee meetings that were happening behind the scenes because that's where a lot of boards do their deliberation. In, in my opinion, it's unfair if, if they don't share the work of the committee publicly. So the public should be asking, how are you making your decisions? Um, uh, a lot of boards operate in closed session on a routine basis. And, I, and there's a lot of limitations on how and what can be done in executive session. So I don't know how they, what they're really talking about. Um, I, I would I would say that if I were a parent, I, one of the things I would probably notice that a lot of boards aren't very transparent in how they make decisions and you don't see them deliberate. And I would be wanting to know more about how they deliberate on any issue. Paul, I don't, I feel like I've said this to other guests, but I will say it here too. This is not the end of this conversation because I will spring this upon you as we're here. Um, I definitely want you back for a part two. I feel like we're in a, in a time where this conversation, not just this conversation, in general, I think we're continuing to demystify a little bit, um, or at least put more of a of a more of a microscope on school boards, which is crazy to say. I mean, it's a you know, it's a it's a form of servitude to the to where we where we're from, right? Like that in isolation seems like a a noble and beautiful thing, and yet somehow it's um you know, there has been this sort of cloud that has now emerged over in the form of political agendas, which mm -hmm. I want to certainly unpack. But on the other side of it, too, as you've been alluding to about that role of service, and we've only really scratched the surface. I like how I just did that there, surface to service, <laughs> anyway, um, of what that is. Paul, I want to, of course, thank you, though, for joining our program. Um, and I know you're on LinkedIn. Is there any other way for people to just stay connected with you, hear about the work that you're doing? Thank you for asking. And thank you for having me, uh, inviting me to do this with you. Um, if you go to my LinkedIn page, there's a lot there. on Some of the things that I've done or proposals or, or my perspective is shared in some articles. There's also a, a, a link to a couple of 40, 45 minute recordings of webinars that I've given on some of these subjects intended for new board members specifically. 
Um, and if anybody messages me through LinkedIn and ha has any questions or wants to see any of that, I'm, I'm happy to hear from people. I, I'm proud to be a board member. I, I talk about it a lot. Um, and and in, the, in this day and age, I hate to see that it doesn't have the same, <laughs> you know, the same respect that it, that it might have had once upon a time. But um, uh, yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm happy to, uh, to share with people and to hear from people. Thank you for listening to the Educate Us podcast. Subscribe to the show, available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please, please, please leave us a review or comment wherever you can. We want to hear from you. If you have a question, comment, or just want to be part of the conversation, email us at theeducateusshow at gmail.com. This has been a production of Leon Media Network. I'm Nick Saveri. I'm Patrice Fenton. And I'm Stacey Schultz. We'll see you next time. 